Revived Thoughts is a production of Revive Studios. Hey everybody, today we are releasing our deep dive into a look at the London Fire of 1666. This is an extended episode where Troy lays out for me the environment of England and London leading up to uh, a devastating fire that burned down most of the city and inadvertently maybe exposed a Catholic plot to overthrow the government. Troy does a great job laying out all of the details of how horrifying it would be to have your entire city burning down around you and the political fear and finger-pointing that ensued in the following weeks, months, years after the London Fire of 1666. Patreon listeners have uh, had access to this episode for weeks, but uh, we are excited now just to open the floodgates on it and let everyone uh, hear. So enjoy this deep dive episode. This is Troy Angel, and you're listening to Revive Thoughts Deep Dive Edition. Yeah, that's right. We're back with another Deep Dive Edition, and this is where we analyze aspects of history, oftentimes church history, see how uh, see how the church played into what has happened in the past. And uh, this one came to me one day. I forget if it was a video I was watching. I think it was a video I was watching, just like a historical YouTube video where they're talking about the London Fire of 1666 and you know if you don't know this was a, a huge tragic fire where you know they, they make it seem like the entire city burnt down I'm, i don't know if it was that dramatic i'm sure troy will tell me here but uh and it got me thinking you know i wonder because london's going through a lot of stuff in 1666 when in regards to the church i wonder how that affected what the church was doing there the spiritual dynamic of the different people groups that were, you know, in Europe and London during that time, that had to be interesting to see. Yeah. How the church responded to that scenario there. And I was chatting about it with Troy one day and we were chatting about, and we, we, we often chat about this type of stuff off mic. And, uh, then I don't know, it was usually, it's like a couple months later and he comes back to me and he's, we're doing a deep dive on this. We, you, you have no idea. I've been looking into this. There are so much interesting things here. Uh, and, you know, stuff I myself had not dug that deep into, uh, but Troy now has. And he is convinced that it is one of the most fascinating things that, <laughs> that an individual could possibly hear. So I'm excited to hear what he has to, to say regarding the London Fire of 1666. You see, Joel, we do, you and me talk about church history, we talk about history all the time, and when I tell you that not many stories are just this intricate, detailed, wild, crazy, uh, full of ups and downs, I'm telling you, they don't. Now, if you remember our story of Ethiopia, if you listened to that one, we took a 3,000-year look at Ethiopia and everything that happened in Ethiopia. And that was not super uncommon for us when we did the Joan of Arc episode. We started in like the 1200s when we did our episode on the Salem Witch Trials. We started in like the very early of the 1600s for a trial that starts in 1691 or whatever it is. This episode is unique and that I don't need to give you uh, a thousand year backstory to get you started on it. And that's one of the things that made it so interesting. All the action starts playing out pretty much right when you would expect it to, uh, right in there in the years of 1660s. Not only that, but almost this entire story will play out in about a 30-year span. In fact, the main characters at the beginning of the story are still mm. the main characters at the end of the story. All wow. of this is going to play out for us in a very short 
moment. I like that. I like yeah. that. Easy to follow. I'm sure I'm sure a lot of our <laughs> listeners will also appreciate, yeah, the fact that, yeah, we can only we only have to keep track of one set of names here. Really do. And what I like about this one too is I think that what what I what I wanted to kind of get across is when we do episodes on the Ethiopian Empire or Joan of Arc, which is covering this English uh, French War of a hundred years, Salem Wish Trials, the First Crusade, we're usually covering um you know, 100, 200, in one case, 3,000 years worth of history. And we're getting several great fire stories that are just kind of like little bullet points in the story. But when you start to dig and really dig into just one of those bullet points, you know, just one of those things, it can be its own huge, gigantic story. And that's kind of what we're doing today. We took one of these bullet points that you'd normally just brush over in the the history of the church in the 1600s in England. And we're just going to dig so hard into this one bullet point and show you all the stuff that's actually happening in that one little message. Now, in this case, we're not going all that far back. We're going to go back to the early 1660s to set the scene for you. London is an ancient city, been around since Roman days, but that's not really important to us. What's important to us is in the 1660s, it's the third largest city uh, Western city in the world is obviously the largest city in the British Isles. But being large and old did not mean it was well-loved. Paris was large and old. It was the biggest city, I believe, at the time. Uh, people spoke of Paris and the beautiful, ornate, artistic city that it was. But London was not treated with that same love. It was just a bunch of wooden homes piled up on top of each other. London was not well-planned, which is to say people just made makeshift houses and homes wherever they could, and they just stuffed them in there, and the city just kind of expanded out that way. If you've ever been, I, it, it's hard, it's not nice to say it maybe, but if you've ever been outside of maybe the Western countries of the world, you've been to a country that's a little bit lower income, you've seen how these kind of houses and cities will just kind of keep building on top of each other where there is no space. And very much so, that's what London was doing in the 1600s. Now, there was an old Roman wall that was in the middle of London, and this kind of created a natural inside London, outside London area. In the inside London, 80,000 people lived in literally one square mile radius. And the outside London had the three to 400,000 people that lived in the, I don't know, medieval suburbs, as it were, right? Because of the crowd, it was pretty common for the house floor, the floor that's touching the ground, of the building, of if you have a house, the first floor is the smallest, and then each floor that goes up gets bigger as you make more rooms and stuff more people inside. And all of this would be made of wood, thatch, straw, and despite that, it had actually been made illegal to build houses out of those tools because they led to fires. Uh, and there had already been fires in London's history. As recent as 1633, there had been a big fire. So the fire of 1666 in that way was not unique. And yet the fire of 1666 will have a completely different impact on London than any fire that had come uh, before it or, you know, really since. Yet again, not all that surprising. Usually fires only burnt down a few homes. The city had no designer. Yet if you could design a city, Joel, with the idea of I'm going to set this city on fire and just burn it all down when I'm done, it would probably look a lot like London did in 1666. <laughs> And this happens throughout history. We see humans doing things that we know are going to backfire, but you kind of keep doing it, hoping that the person it backfires on is not you, right? We know the avalanche from this mountain is going to come someday, but I hope it comes after me, right? I'm going to build my home on the side of this active volcano, but I just hope it doesn't blow up while I'm living in it. People had been warned 
about the situation and been telling people in London, this is not a good situation. King Charles II, the king at the time, in 1661 basically made it a law, don't build any more upper floors on houses. It's too easy for them to catch fire. In 1665, he even said, we're going to put anyone in jail who tries to build more narrow roads and more of these shacks. The city is too combustible. That's one year before this fire. But this had no real world impact. The law was written, everyone read it and moved on with their lives. Now, King Charles II is probably as much of a main character in this story as you can get, which is weird because we're Revived Thoughts, Deep Dive. We do these Christian church history stories where church and history intersect. And this is one of those stories, certainly, where church and history intersect. But what makes it weird is Charles is not a Christian by any stretch. And he does not do really a lot of good for the church. In fact, he's quite bad for the church. He might not be Hitler-esque villainy. Maybe he's a little more human than that, but he's not a good man. He's certainly very easily labeled as the villain of the story. And so the, the person we kind of oversee throughout the story the most is this very self-serving politician who hurts the church in a lot of ways, yet he's going to kind of be our main character because he's king and he's the guy who has the most real impact on the story. His dad, Charles I, was the one that England had thrown out during the English Civil War. During that time, London had sided with Parliament and against the throne. Now his son was back. He was on the throne, and Parliament didn't trust him. Charles II gives you a lot of reasons not to trust him. For starters, Cromwell in 1651 had a direct war with Charles that Charles lost when he tried to regain his crown. Cromwell won, and Charles II lived and hid in continental Europe. He lived in exile for nine years. Charles disguised himself as a commoner and lived like a regular guy, and he was very proud of that. People said he would tell anyone who would listen the tales of him disguising himself as a commoner, how no one recognized him, all the things he learned, how sneaky he was. He was proud of this. It was a, it was a very big story in his courtroom of his commoner days. After Cromwell died, Charles II was allowed to come back. He came back to this big public celebration on his 30th birthday in the year 1660. He's back. He's ready to rule. But the people he's ruling had rebelled and killed his dad. And they had gone 12 years without a king. And now he has to be the king again. And can you imagine how dicey that political scenario is for you if you're the guy who's in there doing it? You're trying to clean up London, maybe make it a little bit nicer. You've seen Paris. You literally lived in Paris. You liked Paris. You want London to be the next Paris, but the people don't really like the throne very much. One of the first things that Charles does when he regains the throne is a series of actions that takes power away from the churches and puts it in the Anglican church, the state-controlled church of England. This basically destroyed the momentum of Puritanism. Although 20 years later, religious toleration was kind of back, the Puritan mo movement was pretty much dead and at least changed forever. Puritans were still liked, but it's just very different. And we've talked about this a lot on Revive Thoughts. If you want to listen to some episodes of men who would get arrested for preaching about Christ or had to go out into barns in the middle of the night to hold services, you can read the stories of or listen to the episodes on John Flavel, John Bunyan, so many other great people who served during that time. Many of them had to serve in jail. Many of them would have to hide out. It was not easy to be a Christian in England if you wouldn't swear allegiance to the king at that time. Now, Charles himself, it sounds like, oh, he takes you know church very seriously, but he didn't. He was not a devout guy. His nickname was, quote, the Merry Monarch. And he left 12 different illegitimate children through many, many, many different mistresses. With a lifestyle like that, you can tell Charles was not really interested in the holiness side of Christian living. 
which makes it all the more frustrating that he put so many Christians in jail. The biggest issue he faced was trying to keep everyone happy as he was the new king that had come back after the revolution. You didn't want them to do what they did to your dad to you. And one way you can at least maybe get some patriotism, get some excitement for the crown, maybe get some excitement for the people is to start a war. And there's a perfect candidate right across the sea there, right across the channel in the Dutch. Now, today, if you think of world powers to go to war with, you probably wouldn't think of the Dutch. You wouldn't think of those people living in the Netherlands as somebody that's going to at least grab a lot of nationalistic headlines. But at the time in the 1600s, they were formidable. They held colonies across Africa and North America. I am currently recording this to you from a former Dutch colony of Indonesia, which is the fourth most populous country in the world. And they were probably your number one trade foe if you were Britain. Both of you were smaller nations that dealt with trade, and both of you had great colonies. In the 1650s, Cromwell has spent time in a two-year war with the Dutch called the First Dutch-Anglo War and had a resounding victory against them. And after the war, they had new lands, new colonies, they had money, and everyone loved Cromwell for doing it. It made him very, very popular with the people. So for Charles, who's not really that popular, this seemed like a great way to get money, get some fame, get some acclaim, He's going to start a war with the Dutch. And in 1665, he launches this war. But the problem is the war in the 1650s went very well. And the war in the 1660s does not go very well. When you think of England and trade, you probably think of the most powerful nation in the world. The 1800s, the sun never set on the British Empire. But that's not where they are in the 1600s. In fact, the Dutch were actually the master traders of the world. And the English were going to war trying to take that power away from the Dutch. The Dutch had become too dominant at trading. There will end up being four of these wars, one in the 1650s, one in the 1660s, another in the 1670s, and finally the last one in the 1780s at the same time as the American Revolution, the Dutch try another war on England. One thing that makes these wars very unique, these English-Dutch wars, is they're almost entirely naval. Most of the time, you know, navies are just to transport armies. They might have like a naval battle here and there. But when the Dutch and English go to war, they're almost, they're both trading empires with boats. All of their battles are pretty much at war on the ocean. This is not normal, but it made them very unique in history, at least. Now, as the war gets going, the people are originally all for it. Charles had returned to power. He'd been kind of pushing anti-Dutch settlement sentiments, getting people to not like the Dutch, legally putting in little laws to kind of make people hate the Dutch. Samuel Pepys, who uh, was alive at the time, he's actually an important name. He's one of the eyewitnesses. He was an English administrator for the Royal Navy who kept a diary and he lived in London. So he's kind of a front row seat to the government, to the Navy, and to what's happening in London. So his diary is very, very important. And he described the people of London as, quote, mad for war, insane for war, crazy for it. They love the idea of it. The goal for the English was to block trade routes use some privateering, that is merchant vessels that kind of act like paid pirates to steal from the Dutch, eventually block enough routes that the Dutch surrender and give some good trade routes to the English, maybe steal a couple colonies. And in March of 1665, the war gets off to a great start. They take many Dutch ships in kind of a surprise attack. They take a bunch of money from the Dutch and they take away a little colony called New Netherlands, which its capital was New Amsterdam, which we renamed or the British renamed New York. However, in 1666, things start to change in the Dutch War. In the beginning, they were dominating the whole way through. And in the first Dutch War, the British dominated the whole way through. But suddenly, something changed. And what seems to have changed wasn't actually having anything to do 
with the war. It had to do with London. It had to do with something. And it's not the fire. It's the plague. Before we can talk about the Great Fire of 1666, you've got to talk about the plague of 1665. The plague is the bubonic plague. And if you've listened to earlier Revived Thoughts Deep Dives or episodes we've done, we've talked about the bubonic plague before. Joan of Arc, we did a big deep dive on what the bubonic plague was and how it rattled Europe. And yet again, we're in another episode where we're telling you history where England is at war with another European country when the plague shows up. The bubonic plague is caused by fleas and it's caused by rat infestations. One of the problems with a city like London when all the people are piled just on top of each other, it's not just that you're easy pickings for a fire. You're also easy pickings for disease. They don't have modern sewage. They don't have waste facilities. They don't have trash men coming around. Food is not kept in fridges. Rats and all kinds of animals are scurrying around all the time. And that makes you pretty easy target for a plague to show up every few years. And the Black Plague had come to London multiple times, but this one was different. Now, in April... There were rumors of, in April of 1665, there were rumors that the plague was coming to London. In May, the plague killed 40 people. In June, that number jumped up to 6,000 people. In July, that number jumped again to 17,000 people. And by August, that number had jumped up to 32,000 people. That's 8,000 people dying a week of the Black Death that they could keep numbers for. And I read some more. We'll talk about it. Man, those numbers are probably off. Those numbers would be bad in a modern city. But London, which, I mean, if you lived in a city where 8,000 people were dying right now, that would be a big deal. But imagine an old city like London. It's much, much smaller. London has about 300,000 inhabitants when this starts. 15% of the city died in just that summer. And this may not be something you like to think about, but there are practical implications. When people die, you have to put their body somewhere. But what kind of city has graveyards ready to deal with that many new bodies all at once? You need to get them in the ground quickly. You don't have fridges. You don't have any way to ice them. And even worse, whatever space they're taking up, another dead body is going to be there in a minute, and it's summer. Back in those days, you'd have carts with horses and people yelling, bring out your dead. The kind of classic medieval meme you've heard of, maybe seen on Monty Python. But this isn't in the, quote, medieval days. This is the middle of the 17th century. America has been founded and is being colonized. The Reformation has taken place. It seems late in the story to have the plague cart coming through town yelling, bring out your dead, doesn't it? If your home was discovered to have a plague, they sealed you inside. When they painted a red cross over your door, and it was pretty much expected that everyone in your house would die. After you died, they would then take you and your loved one's bodies out in a cart. They wouldn't bury you in a proper funeral, but they would dump you into a giant hole called a plague pit. Because dead bodies overran the city, they dug hundreds of pits all over the city. They've actually been mapped out now. If you go in London or you want to pull out your Google and put London plague pits, you can see spots on the Google Maps where they think they found them. Samuel Pepys, the man from before, wrote the pits as this. It was a terrible pit, it was, and I could not resist my curiosity to go and see it. As near as I may judge, it was 40 feet in length, 16 to 15 feet abroad. And at the time, at first, it looked like it was about nine feet deep. But they told me they dug it 20 feet deep. And at one point, part of it, they couldn't go any deeper because then they would hit the water. For they had, it seems, dug several large pits before this, so they knew what they were doing. For though the plague was long a coming to our church, yet when it did come to our church, there was no church like it that had raged with such violence as the two parishes of which he went to, Aldgate and Whitechapel. I mean, 
Can you imagine living in a city where there are red crosses being painted on the doors around you and you walk by your local church and there's a giant 20-foot hole by 15-foot hole that's 20-foot deep, uh, 40-foot long actually, and that's where they're just throwing bodies because they have nowhere else to put them. And that's not a Christian funeral. There's no love there. They're just dumping you there until they get room for more. We are far removed from stuff like this. I, I don't think we've really ever experienced anything quite like that. The amount of tragedies, losses, pain, suffering, agony that these people went through has just been forgotten a little bit to history. And for the better, I'm glad most of us can't experience, don't know what an experience like this is. Many people ran away from London. Samuel Pepys said London basically became a ghost town full of empty streets. Anyone who could leave, had the money to leave, was gone. And can you blame them? The city's overrun with a disease like this. 15% of the city dies. Would you stay? King Charles and his court, they retreated out of the area. Leaving made sense. But when you leave, you take the plague with you. Now other towns are beginning to get hit with the plague. And this eventually brings it to the armies that are fighting in that second Dutch-Anglo war. The soldiers are losing loved ones back home. Some of them are dying their streets are becoming empty on London. You can't afford to farm and do commerce because you're too scared to bring your goods to trade because what if you die? People aren't sending their kids off to war. Some of them are dying and the ones back home are struggling. This leads the English army to somewhat start to begin to waver in their battle. Now, there is this heroic story. Probably, I, I think I, when I teased this in one of our episodes, it's one of the saddest stories I've ever heard, but it really is one of the saddest I've ever heard. If you live in London, you might be familiar, or England, you might be familiar with this, but as an American, I'd never heard of it. And it's happened in the town of Eom. Might be mispronouncing that. Now, this is an incredible but sad story. A traveler was going through, escaping London, and he left his laundry at home as he went. Well, unfortunately, that load of laundry had fleas, and before you know it, plague erupted in the village. They were only a little village of about 350 people. The immediate instinct was, oh, we have found plague in our small little town outside, you know, wherever we are. Let's run away. Get everyone out as fast as you can. But two men called the people to do something horrible, but heroic. They said, let's all stay in the village. Let's quarantine this village off. No one's allowed to leave. Everyone should stay in. If they left, you'd still end up bring, running into the plague somewhere and you would bring the plague to other places. But if everyone stayed, the plague wouldn't continue to the next town and they could hold it there. If they just stayed, the plague wouldn't move to the next place. The two men that did this were the Anglican priest of the town and the recently ejected Puritan, Reverend Thomas Stanley. He wasn't allowed to preach. He had been kicked out of the church yet. He'd been running kind of, I think, uh, home church services. And the two of them were the spiritual leaders of the city, completely different sides of the aisle. One of them is the state-run church and one of them is the home church. Yet they came together and said, please, for the greater good, don't leave the inner limits of the city. We're not going anywhere. We're going to sacrifice our lives here and deal with the plague without running away. Now, it's easy to hear a story like that and begin to go, oh, that's pretty cool. I wish I would do that. But it's a lot harder to think about doing it when it's your kids and your wife or your husband and your family, your elderly father, your uh, young sister, who all have to agree not to leave. And not only do you have to agree not to leave the city while the plague is coming through, but you have to agree to trust everyone that they're going to do their part. What if you all stay and then a year later when during the plague, someone makes a run for it and all of it's for nothing. They worked out a deal with nearby merchants. The merchants would drop food off and medicine and in return, they would receive coins disinfected with vinegar. They built a wall around the town to ensure no one could go or leave. 
Only twice was it known that people broke the quarantine. At one point, a woman broke out to go to a nearby market, but when they saw her, they said she's from that place, and they yelled and threw stuff at her. So maybe some of the reason they didn't leave was because the reputation got around and they couldn't. In a small village, over the summer, nearly every single day, someone died. People stopped making repairs to the town buildings in Little Iom, and fields became overgrown. Part of this was lack of manpower. Part of it was just fear of living in a community where everyone you knew and loved all growing up was dying. And of course, I mean, your mental health state of being stuck inside of a small town of dying people, probably feeling depression and feeling imprisoned by that plague. Eventually, the village stonemason who was making the grave stones died, and so then people had to try to make their own as they were going. One farmer, uh, one of the rules of the village was you had to bury the person that died as quickly as possible, and that, that makes perfect sense. However, one farmer's wife would bury her husband and six of her own children, all of them, by the way, she only had six, in the space of eight days. She had to wrap them in cloth that she had around her house and would drag them to different spots where she would bury them around the village, and there was no gravestones even to mark them. How can you comprehend pain and suffering on this kind of a level? And there's no way it, we can tell you about the story historically speaking, but there's just no way to imagine what it could be like to live through a village going through this in the 1660s. By the end of the plague in November of the next year, this village, the last village, di villager died, sorry, in the year November of the next year. The once town of 340, 50, maybe 60 people was lost 266 members of its village to plague. These houses still stand. You can go to England and find them. They have plaques commemorating them to this day. They call them the plague cottages. William Mompesson, the Anglican priest who brought on the quarantine, lost his wife during the plague and a few years later left the post, couldn't live in the village anymore and left forever. But every other villager who went there went back to their old jobs and just lived as they did before, as if nothing ever happened. They just kept going. And they did accomplish their goal. Because of their quarantine, the plague did not spread to the other towns in their region, and that was as far north as the plague went. This is the kind of heroic and terrible things that are happening all over England in 1665 because of the plague. Now, Samuel Pepys said that most part, for the most part, people remembered, he, what he remembered hearing that year was just a constant ringing of church bells telling him that someone had died. And one of the sad aspects was, that during the Great Plague, many of the physicians, the doctors, they were the ones running out of the city. They had the money and the means, so they got out of town. It makes sense, right? You know how bad the plague is. You as a doctor have seen death more personally than ever. You don't want to die, and you're not poor, so you leave. The great Anglican priests had also been known to leave. You know, the doctors ran for it. The Anglican priests ran for it. Yeah, some stayed. Many of those who stayed died, but many just left because they could. When you think about it, though, that's really sad because that was when you needed priests and doctors the most, when the plague was there. But there was a group that was famous for not leaving. Although the Anglican bishops left during this time, the dissenting pastors, the nonconformists, those people who'd been kicked out of the church, who had been hiding out, they stayed. Many of them preached Christ to the victims of the plague and would go from house to house where plague victims were, were telling them about the Jesus Christ they loved so much. They earned the respect of all of London. They became champions. They were so popular. Many, many just found a love for this group of people who, when everyone else left, they stayed. And how did Charles II respond? By passing the Five Mile Act, which said you could not minister to the same people that you lived within five miles of. This was seen as a direct action made because of the pastors and Puritans who had stayed in London taking care of the sick 
It did not make him more popular, but it did make them more popular as they continued to take care of the sick anyway. And there was no one from King Charles's court to arrest them because they'd all run away. What a reward, right, though? Oh, you stayed a minister to the people of London while they were dying of plague because the ministers and doctors ran away? Well, we're going to make it illegal for you to do that in the future. Eventually, people realized that the London migrant refugees were, hint, hint, the ones carrying the plague from town to town. And so soon the towns shut their doors. Many of the people who tried to run away from London eventually couldn't get anywhere. No one let them in. And there's untold numbers. I mean, we're talking hundreds and thousands of people who starved or died of dehydration on the roads because no home would open their doors to people coming from the town with the Black Plague. When you have a city in a condition like this, imagine just something as practical as bringing food in. Food usually comes from right outside the city where the farms are. And there's a surplus of food right now because you have less people buying. Think about that. As a merchant, you have all this food you need to sell, but there's no way to get it to the city because that's where the plague is. So they set up these elaborate markets where you'd put food on like a wooden thing and they would draw it in with a string and they'd wash it off with vinegar because they believed vinegar killed plague. And in some ways it kind of does. And after shouting back and forth, these Londoners would like do these trade things with people hundreds of feet standing away because they wouldn't get any closer to them. In one t- part of town, every single doctor died. That's Westminster area, not exactly a small part of town. Think of how that affects a city for years. Who trains the next generation of doctors when all the doctors in the capital city have died? Think of how long this problem will last for you. No one knows the records of exactly how many people died, partially because, get this, the record keepers died. In one spot, they had a record where they said 50% of people died, but then it was very obvious that the person keeping the records was the next person to die. And so we don't actually know how many people died in that part of town. And then what records were saved, get this, there's a giant fire in the year 1666, and so many of those records were burned. But it's not, and a lot of scholars think that it could have been as high as 50% of the city killed by plague that year, 50%. Even if you go with the conservative estimate of about 30%, 30% of 300,000 is about 100,000 people. That's incredible. This is not happening in medieval Europe, right? This isn't the 1300s of Joan of Arc. This is after America has been discovered. There's another account inside of London. It was dismal to behold the red crosses and read in great letters, Lord, have mercy upon us on the doors and watchmen standing before them with guards. People passed by gingerly. They looked at each other with fearful looks as if they were lined around them by enemies in ambush ready to destroy them. A man at the corner of the artillery wall, I judged he had the dizziness of the head. He had the disease. He jumped from the wall, trying to dash himself against the wall. When I came by, he was laying in a, laying there hanging with his blood all over his face. He was bleeding. I went and spoke to him, but he could make no answer. He rattled in his throat, and I was informed within an hour from my time there he had died. It would be endless to speak of what we had seen and heard, of some in their frenzy rising out of their beds, leaping through their rooms, screaming, crying, and roaring out their windows. Some would come out almost naked and run into the streets. Scarcely a day passed over my head for think over a month or two, but I should hear the death of someone I knew and loved and cared about. The first day that they were smitten, the next day they seemed like they would recover, and on the third day they died. After the winter, people began to return to London. The king and his people came back in February. The wealthy and nobility began to follow after that. And By the March or so, the merchants were back and the city was coming back to life. But I mean, the people who lived through that winter, can you imagine what that was like? 
Many people whose villages had been decimated by the plague came to London. Well, lost everything else. I might try, might try to make my fortune there in the big city, right? Although the plague was still around, it would still be killing people all the way up until about November of that year. The big plague rush happened in 1665. Now, one interesting thing, this is kind of a leftover thought from that era that actually came to all us all the way to now, was that tobacco salesmen had started a rumor that you know who didn't die of t- did die of t- plague there, Joel? Uh, tobacco salesmen. And anybody yeah, tobacco. who smoked tobacco. And so they said, hey, you know, if you want to keep away the plague, the smell of tobacco keeps the plague away. So people started buying tobacco like crazy. And of course, they got used to the regular habit of tobacco and pipe smoking. And it became very common in England. And so one of the reasons tobacco is such a popular thing today, one of the many reasons, but one of the reasons is because of this idea that, oh, tobacco sellers never get the plague and you should smoke tobacco. I mean, one group of people took advantage of the chaos, I guess. Now, going back over to the war here in England, uh, in January, King Louis XIV of France declares war against English and decides to kind of aid uh, the Dutch here in this war. He had originally asked England not to go to war with the Dutch. England ignored him. His fleet was in the Mediterranean, but France is a big deal. And so England worried about when the French fleet and the Dutch fleet got together. That would make this a very tough war. And he was already not winning because of all the people dying of plague. They end up having this big battle called the Four Days Battle. It happens in the middle of June. I don't know much about no- naval battles, and it does kind of take some know-how to read and explain them very well. One big mistake that they made, though, that was kind of unique was that both of the people on the Dutch side and the English side who ran this battle weren't naval battle guys either. They were land battle guys. And so if you've ever seen like a movie like The Patriot or you know anything on the Revolutionary War, it's famous that the British kind of all line up on one side, point their guns, load and fire, and kind of back and forth, right? You didn't normally do that in naval battles. But because the guys running both sides of the battle line were land guys, they actually did that with the boats. They lined the boats up on the sea. They waited till everyone got lined up, and then they started firing on each other back and forth. There's actually um, entertaining-ish, I mean, entertaining to a degree, YouTube videos of people watching, like reenacting the scene where they line them up. And it's just such a weird thing to see them fighting like that because it's just not normally how battles at sea are fought with both sides lined up like that. Now, this kind of went back and forth for a few days. The English on the fourth day finally retreated. Both sides lost ships. It wasn't a clear winner, but most agreed that the Dutch were in the winning side of this battle and didn't go the way the English had thought it would. And even worse, if the French fleet had been there, most people think the English would have been toast, but the French fleet was lost. Now, I still try to imagine four days of just nonstop cannon firing back and forth at ships. It's got to be madness. If you're on that boat, four days straight, a boom, 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 cannon, 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 very stressful, I'm sure. Now, part of the reason the English were not prepared to deal with the Dutch is because the Dutch actually had better ships, better technology, better cannons. They were a lot more prepared for this war than they were that first war 10 years before. English fleet sails back into the River Thames in England. They kind of limp in, not feeling great. And the Dutch decide to blockade the river. And that's blockading England's, you know, biggest river, biggest deal here. Kind of a slap on the face. And they were planning a landing party to attack England. They didn't get it together in time. And the English fleet starting starting to get repairs, kind of recovering. Uh, but the, the Dutch kind of lose control of this part of the European waters. And English kind of get control. It kind of goes back and forth. It looked like the English could maybe still win this. And it was kind of a big deal. And this is when they send a very small group of English boats back over to the Dutch side and they do what is called the Holmes Bonfire. And two days, a very small force of English were able to set fire to 150 Dutch ships, blowing the Dutch just completely out of the water. 
and it just is this giant fire. Everyone feels very, very great. And England goes, yes, okay, we may have lost our momentum. We didn't really do well in the four days battle, but the Holmes bonfire, we're back on track now. Now we can win this war, right? And then three days or three weeks later, another fire happens in the middle of a very hot and dry summer, this time in London. Now, when King Charles II showed up in London, people cheered him. Yay, this is the end of the gloomy days of Puritans. They, they, the Puritans, you know, they, they did a lot of good things. But if you were living in London at the time, you weren't allowed to go to theater. You weren't allowed to sing. You weren't allowed to drink. You weren't allowed to dance. Yeah, people didn't really like that. And Charles came in and goes, let's have fun. And so he got that nickname, the Merry Monarch. He had a famous extravagant court full of wealth and parties and money. And he spent money like crazy. Now, you don't really love it when your government spends money in good times, but what about when times aren't good? What about when your city is recovering from one of the worst bouts of plague it's ever had? What about when you're in the middle of a war and the war is going okay, but not great? People didn't really like the way Charles was spending all that money. The war wasn't lost, and they looked like they might even have a turnaround, but it wasn't the success of Cromwell's war. People were comparing Charles to Cromwell. You know, kind of reminded me of uh, in the Bible, you know, David kills his or sorry, Saul kills his thousands and David kills his tens of thousands. But in this case, it was kind of coming off the other way. Cromwell killed the Dutch, but Charles is losing to the Dutch. What's going on there? Preachers in London were preaching that the plague, the war, it was a punishment from God and that the treatment of the Puritans under Charles was causing all of these things to go down. And remember, the Puritans were kind of popular. They stayed in London and took care of people. And how did Charles thank them? By making it illegal. What he did not need at this time was another disaster. Now, most research you see will tell you how the fire started and moved on from there. But Joel, and, and Joel, you're a little bit aware of the fire, but I don't know how aware of the fire the audience is. And so I mm -hmm. have decided to not tell you the story that way. I'm going to put you in the shoes of the average Londoner. I will reveal to you how the fire started, but not immediately. Because I think for you, to understand what it was like for the average Londoner at that time and how they got swept into this big panic they're going to get swept into, you need to get the details a little bit like them. The news moved more slowly back then, right? People didn't have, you know, internet and social media and things like that to bring the news to them. There was no CNN online. There was no radio. They just had to get the news from word of mouth or newspapers. And uh, as we'll see in a minute, the newspaper place is one of the first places to burn down. So it's going to make the news move even slower. We will tell you what happens, but we're going to do it much like as if you were a Londoner waking up that day. Pepys, our guy, said he was woken up in the middle of the night by his servants and was told of news of a fire. He looked out his window. He saw that there was a fire off in the city somewhere, and he went back to bed. Fires break out in London all the time. A fire a few blocks away was really not a big deal. But when he woke up the next time in the morning, that fire in the middle of town had grown into a raging fire that had taken over the completely taken over the market nearby. The police and volunteer firefighters were arriving and they believed the houses next to the homes on fire needed to be destroyed to ensure the fire did not spread. This is called creating a fire break. We still kind of do that today. You clear the trees and things around the fire so the fire has no more ammunition to move. Makes sense, right? Cut off the source of energy. The fire will, you know, die down. Then it can't go on to the next house. Easy to say, but if you own a house next to a fire and someone goes, hey, we need to tear your house down piece by piece so the fire doesn't spread, you might not so be so keen and excited for them to do that. 
The firefighters had to get permission to do this from the mayor. The mayor of London shows up and doesn't give permission. The fire was getting larger and headed towards warehouses in a sector of town full of wood and ammunition. But the mayor said, hey, who knows who owns these properties? How would we notify them? How do we get permission? Some of these are rented. This is a big deal. He kind of priddled and prattled. Now, pressured multiple times, the mayor said, and I paraphrase the word that the famous phrase, people, they're scholars today. So he didn't do this. The mayor's hands were tied. You did the best you could. Sure. But the phrase that went around was this fire is not a big fire. A woman could pee on it and take it out. The mayor is somebody who pretty much everyone in history holds guilty as one of the main reasons the fire went so wrong. And you can see why. Soon panic began to overtake the people. People saw this fire taking off and now homes and houses were getting pulled down. At this point, it was too late and the fire was going. People were no longer interested in putting out the fire after a while. Soon they were interested in saving themselves in their own home. By the time the sun was up, 300 houses had already burnt down and there was a full on panic in the city. One thing people pointed out when the fighting the fire was that they felt like they were fighting the very weather itself. Every time they would start to get a handle on the fire in one spot or create a fire break, suddenly the wind would shift and the fire would move in a new direction. And due to the lack of rain, many of the rivers of England at this time had dried up. And so when people were running all over looking for places to get water, there was none. During the plague, it was the poor that were the hardest hit. Because of the location of the fire, the fire actually swept through poor neighborhoods, but it also smashed through the rich and wealthy neighborhoods the hardest. Wealthy shops and landowning merchants who had kind of avoided the worst of the plagues were now having all of their homes and lives destroyed in front of them. While people were gathering all their earthly belongings and running as fast as they could from the fire, another group was coming into the city. They were here to help? No. They were people in the villages that had heard about this big fire and they had come to sight see. Yes, they were here to watch the fire and the effort and were interested. It was a tourist thing. They don't have TV back then. Let's watch the fire. Chaos was everywhere. By the end of the day, Charles II had been informed of the fire. It actually took him all day. And it was Samuel Pepys who sent a message to Charles II and said, do you know there's a fire in London? He actually was in the city at the time, but did not know it because of the way that the uh, Buckingham Palace was kind of pointed. He couldn't see it for a long time. When he did, he immediately tried to find out why the mayor wasn't pulling down more houses and they got everybody on it. Soon they had giant hooks and they were pulling the houses down. It would have been great, but the fire was already too strong. The next day, Monday, news emerged that wind, wind was bringing sparks to the palace itself. The kings had to set up councils and mobilized volunteer forces, but they had to put all their pressure on stopping the fire from reaching the palace. The palace itself looked like it was going to catch fire, and they spent all day creating fire breaks around the palace. They did stop the fire from reaching the palace, although it built burned buildings like literally right around the palace, but that took all day. By the time they were ready to help the rest of the city and they had spared the palace, it was too late to help anybody. Churches far, far from the fires began helping by giving out food and water to refugees who were running away from the fire. Churches were made a safe place to drop off your belongings so that they would be kept safe. People were rallying together and uniting. Let's put this fire out. And soon they heard news that the king, Charles II, and his brother were running out and doing it too. They were out there on the front lines with everyone else, carrying buckets of water and throwing them on the fire. People all over the city were telling stories of having seen the king on the front lines covered in mud and dirt, doing everything he could and handing out money to, you know, very courageous firefighters he saw. The fire was jumping from one place to another due to the wind. But people, in a panic, were starting to wonder, this fire just seems to spring up in one spot 
and then land in another with no real warning? How is it that one part of the city can be burning and then suddenly another part of the city is suddenly burning too? And people began to suspect. After all, wouldn't you? England is at war with the Dutch. They had just swept the Dutch in a horrible surprise attack where they burned their ships with fire. Was it that hard to believe that maybe some arsonists, maybe some loyalists to the Dutch, had snuck in and decided to burn London? This began leading to street violence in the midst of the fire against anybody foreign. One thing that probably didn't help is that these people fleeing and fighting fires had almost no way of learning what was going on. Remember, they don't have news coming to them right now. Imagine you're running through your own hometown. It's on fire and you don't know what's going on, but you do remember that you're at war. And this fire just keeps going off everywhere. And you hear loud explosions and giant, you see giant balls of fire exploding around you because that's what was happening. And people began to wonder, are we being attacked? Is this a war? What's happening? Any foreigner was liable to be suspected. They didn't have to be just Dutch. They didn't have to be just French. The panic mob couldn't really tell the difference. People of every ethnicity, Swedish, Dutch, French, everyone was in trouble. The lines of communication were out and burnt down. The post office, where you get your, it's burnt down too. The London Gazette, where you get your daily newspaper, it's, it's burnt down. There's actually this side story how literally as they were putting the last newspapers on the carts, the fire burnt down the newspaper in front of them. So the very last thing everyone got out of the newspaper was London's on fire. It was the last thing they saw. Poor people then began running around carting rich people's belongings, by the way. They would run from, it was kind of like an Uber of a sorts. You know, these rich people have all these wealthy things. Remember, their neighborhoods are on fire. And so these poor people would run up with a cart and charge as much as, and this is real, as much as $150,000 in today's money to take your family's priceless heirlooms out of the city and away from the fire. Eventually, the city leaders shut the gates and began arresting people because there were so many people carting priceless heirlooms that nobody was actually working on putting out the fire. Let's just think about that for a minute. So many people were getting rich off of moving rich people's money out that nobody was putting out the fire because, well, let's be honest, would you, right? I mean, some, you're making more money with the fire raging. Maybe it'll move over to that really nice neighborhood over there, right? That can get a lot of stuff moved out over there. The mayor who originally said this was no big deal. Remember him? Yeah, he's nowhere to be found. In fact, the entire day of Monday, he just skipped and left town. In fact, the general account is he just left the city. Now, the mayor wasn't, was the only person allowed to bring the soldiers in, of the kings into London. There was a long-standing rule that the king could not bring his soldiers into London without the permission of the mayor. And the person who didn't want to break that rule was King Charles II. After all, he had barely been let back in as a king. The soldiers weren't supposed to enter the city. Finally, at the end of Monday, he says, forget those old rules. The city is burning down. We've got to bring the soldiers in, bring them in. Because even in a fire raging, the people still didn't want London to be taken over by the king. They were still fearful of the civil war. And it just was a big thing, fighting, all this kind of stuff. But King Charles and his brother James we're seen all day rallying those people and getting the soldiers to calm the madness. They started breaking up some of those fights that were happening against people who were not um, English or French and Dutch. And they were starting to get some calm there. And people saw the mud and sweat on the king in their eyes. Oh, he seems like he's not such a bad guy. They thought, they thought for a minute, hey, you know what? Maybe there's some hope. Maybe this fire won't be so bad. And then that night, Baneyard's castle fell. You may not have heard of Baneyard's castle. The reason you've never heard of Baynard's Castle is because it burnt down in 1666. But it was the other side of London's famous London's Tower. 
And actually, it was considered the more famous, prettier version of that tower. And in fact, everyone who visited London said it was Baynard's castle was the one beautiful gem she had, but she didn't survive the night. This was a real blow to morale when people woke up the next day. It was one of the symbols of London, and it's lost forever. Imagine today trying to imagine London without Big Ben or, or London without London's Tower, and you get an idea of what people are going through, right? It's New York City without the World Trade Centers or without the Statue of Liberty. It just doesn't feel the same anymore. The hope was that on Tuesday, now that they've gotten Buckingham Palace squared away, we're going to organize an attack, get the firefighters out there, and we're going to really take it down this day. But it completely fell. And even the king's brother, James, was there. He was going to rally the people. We're going we're gonna to take it on. They built this big wall of people to take on the fire. But remember when we said that they were fighting the, fi the, fighting the weather itself? Well, that's what happened. They built this wall of people with buckets ready to go. And then the wind changed. And the wind literally brought the fire behind the firefighters. Soon the firefighters were throwing buckets of water in both directions. And they had to run for it because the fire was overwhelming them. Instead of t Tuesday being the day when they thought they'd put the fire out, Tuesday ended up being the most destructive day of the fire in all of its days. And this is the point. It's day three of the city burning. Building and structures that on Monday, no one imagined would ever go up in flames, were gone by Tuesday night. One of those was St. Paul's Cathedral. And St. Paul's Cathedral should have been safe. This is a big, beautiful cathedral. It was made of thick stone. It was covered but the problem was it was covered in scaffolding for renovations. People have been loading it up with their goods. Remember, churches were saying, bring your stuff here. We'll take care of it. We'll watch it. No one will steal it. Well, people had filled it with their stuff, even because it seemed like a nice, safe wooden structure that couldn't burn. So even though it wasn't a wooden structure, it was filled inside and outside with wood, and that made it you, flammable. You said, you said it was—I think you misspoke— you said it was a safe wooden structure. You mean stone safe, structure? Yeah, stone structure. Sorry. Gotcha. I, I just call it out because a listener will be <laughs> will call you out if I... Yeah, know. sure. No, it's a stone structure, but it's covered on the outside with wooden scaffolding. Wooden it's covered scaffolding. on the inside with wooden goods that had been loaded there for the fire. So what looked like a safe place to hide your goods suddenly wasn't. And once the fire got there, it became very, very hot. People watched as the roof, which was covered in lead, began to melt and pour down the street. Literally, the eyewitnesses said it created a river of lead that went down for two blocks. And I, you're standing outside watching this famous church melt before your eyes, and you're just going, oh my goodness, what is happening? They said this river would end up being six acres long and would look like white snow pouring down the street. Soon the roof fell into the cathedral. Now, not only had people put their goods there, but people were hiding in the cathedral thinking that the stone structure was safe. And soon the roof fell down on them and fire pieces were landing all around them. The floor was wooden and soon they were falling through the floor and the smashing fire pieces fell through the wooden floor. And you know what they kept under the cathedral, Joel? They kept all the books there. And when you have old, dusty, dry books with giant blobs of fire and the cathedral went up in absolute flames. Now, Joel, I'm going to read something to you and to anyone listening in the audience that I had to read it to believe it. This is one of the most terrifying things I have ever read in a history segment. So we're just going to, and we've just covered the plague. Imagine you're hiding in London. This fire has gone on for three days. Maybe it's war. Maybe it's not. 
You're hiding in the biggest church in London. It's made of stone. You thought you were safe, but the roof caved in. The floor below you is catching fire. Everything's on fire. The river of the roof is a river, molten, hot lead thing looking like snow. And then this happens. The heat caused tombs inside the cathedral to break open and their dead came out, including Braybrook, a 14th century bishop of London. The spectacle of whose body jumping out of the tomb frightened those who saw it. Pepys, of course, who's always there, described his flesh as looking like dry leather. Such scenes justified Evelyn's description of the city during the Great Fire as resembling this place as Sodom on its last day. You're inside of a church hiding where they've been burying, you know, great bishops for hundreds of years. And while you're hiding, the city's catching fire and the, the church is catching fire. And you're trying to figure out how to get out of there. An old tomb bursts open and a 300-year-old bishop just pops out and rolls across the floor at you. And at least two people confirmed, not just Samuel Pepys, but someone else confirmed this is real and happened. Imagine the psychological toil that has on you. As a last resort, they started pulling down every building with hooks, but it wasn't working. So then they started to do what would do the job quicker. They began blowing up the homes with gunpowder. This did work. And that way, when they started blowing up the houses with gunpowder, they were able to make bigger fire breaks and start to actually make some headway in fighting the city, uh, fighting the fire. But if you're in the city and you already think you're at war and suddenly explosions are going off around you and you see buildings falling, well, what do you think is happening? The government is clearing paths to stop the fire, but do you know that? Rumors everywhere is that the French or Dutch might be invading right now. What does the side of something like this look like to you? The fire took days to end. Some accounts say it was about a full week. Others say within four or five days it was over. Either way, imagine dealing with a fire inside of a city that lasts four straight days. As the dust settled, what was left of London? Well, about one-fifth, 20% of the city was still standing. The palace had been saved. The Tower of London had just barely made it. But nearly every other aspect and memorable landmark of London was gone. Markets, castles, cathedrals, everything you knew about the London skyline was gone in the course of four days. If you're old enough to remember or ever see pictures of New York City before and after 9-11, you know how big a deal just a small skyline change can be to just the psychology of a, of a city, you know? But this was 20% of it still standing. Imagine if after 9-11, only 20% of New York City was still standing. You lost the Trade Center, the Empire State Building, and the Statue of Liberty all at once. The enormous damage was just unbelievable. And today it would be caught about $2 billion in today's damages. But a better way to understand it is the damages were 8 to 9 million pounds at a time when the entire income of London was 120,000 pounds. Three days after the fire had been out, it began to rain. And you may think, good, rain will wash out the fire, right? And the drought's over. No. The drought lasted a lot longer, and in the meantime, the water hit so fast that it actually spread ash everywhere, made it a thick, mud-like substance that was almost impossible to clean and made everything gray and dreary with the stain of the ash from the fire. All the buildings were now covered in this sticky, stuck, blackened ash you couldn't scrub off for anything. Forty days after the fire, the real rains finally came, and for ten days straight it rained. Some fires still continued to break out among the ruins. In fact, remember, this fire starts in September. 
on the 30th of November, one cellar still had coals burning inside of it that they discovered. They were digging through and they found pieces of wood still from the original fire three months later. And according to Samuel Pepys, even in March of the next year, you could still see smoke coming out of different parts of the city, remnants of what he said were the Great Fire. How is that possible? I have no idea. Seven years later, a study was done by the court, and they said 25% of the population of London after the fire and after the plague just never came back, permanently moved on. Despite all this damage, there were actually almost no deaths, which is insane. Five to six actual recorded deaths. This is one of the shocking and most miraculous aspects of the fire. One also that many modern historians dispute that there's just no way that could be true. They also think the number of people, if nothing else, they say the number of people who were displaced, who would have died of starvation, dehydration, exposure, diseases, all of that stuff because of the fire would have killed many, many, many thousands of people, if nothing else. People immediately wanted somebody to blame. And by the way, you want to know what other people thought? The Dutch laughed. They scorned the English. They said, this is, what, this is God getting you back for burning our ships like you did London. This is your judgment. And then the French agreed too. They said, ha, the judgment of God has landed on London. And you know what? The English agreed as well. Many of the English began preaching God's judgment is on this city and on this country for how we have been treating people. They said, because we have a king that helps Catholics, we're in trouble. Because of what we're doing to the Puritans, we're in trouble. Because we've gone to war with a fellow Protestant neighbor, we're in trouble. God has sent this unusual fire and wind on them that they couldn't beat no matter what as a chastisement for their sins. Even one of the governors of the country itself said, all are in amazement at the heavy judgment that has fallen on London, which has concluded to be the total devastation and destruction of our great metropolis. Notice that language, a judgment. Everyone felt English, French, Dutch, everyone felt like the act of God itself had come down and judged them. They were so sure it was a judgment that on October 10th, they declared a day of humiliation and fasting. England was supposed to bring everyone together and pray and repent for whatever it was they had done. Speaking of judgment, there were other strange things happening at this time too. It could be a coincidence. I mean, it could be, but I'm going to tell you because this was in the subconscious culture of the people at the time. But some people really did believe it was God's judgment. You see, there had been a rumor going around for years that the beast of Revelation would rise on the year marked with the devil's number. Joel, what's the devil's number? Triple six, 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 six. And what year does the fire of London happen? Six, 1666. And oh, you can no. see. And so in one of the famous accounts was astrologer William Lilly, who wrote 22 years earlier that 1666 would be the end times for London and the beasts of Revelation would descend on England, the Antichrist would take over Europe afterwards. He based this off a prediction made by another astrologer back in the year 1548, who said that the year 1666 would be marked by the beast taking over. And if you think this wasn't a big deal of what happened, then you're not parliament because they actually brought William Lilly to court during their investigative committee to explain how he knew a fire would happen 22 years before it did. He pointed to the stars. He considered himself a Christian astrologer, and he traveled in odd groups. His books and almanacs were bought at 30,000 a year. So he, I mean, he translated astrology into English. I'm not saying he's a good person, but people at the time loved him, and they saw him as the English Merlin paving the way for magic. Everyone else, of course, he was a troublesome imposter whose freedom to make predictions was causing problems, yet he said, I need religious freedom. He was a strange man who, it might be noted, married an old widow when he was young in secret, then inherited all of her health, out of her wealth at a very, very young age. 
gives you the idea that this guy is kind of shrewd. He reminds me, there are just people in history that are kind of Rasputins. They do strange things mm. and you can't explain them. And that's what William Lilly is. He's a strange guy, yet he managed to talk his way out of court. And he managed to even talk his way out of the fact that he had predicted this very fire itself. Nostradamus also is another famed astrologer. You might have heard of him. He was born in 1503. He died in the year 1566. And he also predicted London would fall to fire. He once said, The blood of the just will commit a fault in London. Burnt through like lightning, 23s of six, the ancient lady will fall from her high place. Several of the same group will be killed. Now, you could be saying, what does this mean? Well, he said, basically, in the year 1666, there will be a fire in London. That's, that's astrology talk for what he was saying. And guess what? In the year 1666, there was a giant fire in London. Now, it's also important to know that William Lilly guy, he had a pamphlet of London literally on fire, surrounded by tombstones that had the year of 1666 all over it. You can see why these guys looked confusing. You have that out there in the cultural consciousness, right? The conspiracy theory, wild astrologers correctly predicted that London would burn in 1666. And they're saying it's God's judgment. The English are saying it's God's judgment. Your preachers are saying it's God's judgment. It really feels like everyone's saying you're being judged. One more thing that did not help news was in October. Remember, the fire ends in the September 4th. In October, something else that happened in England at the time. You won't see this on history books. I'm not even sure how I found this. Um, but one of the greatest, biggest storms of all London's history landed in October. Now, remember, September, the fire happens. October, the biggest, uh, w one of the biggest storms in London history lands in Lincolnshire, UK. Now, this is 150 miles away from London. But it's a month after the worst fire in England's history. And a month afterwards, England receives her worst tornado in her entire country's history. To this day, it's still the worst tornado in her history. There's not a lot of details on what happened, but it managed to kill three people and destroyed a bunch of buildings. History and science believe it is the only Category 5 tornado that has ever landed in the UK. On the 23rd of October, this is pretty much the entire passage on it, 1666, the most intense tornado on record for the UK and England passed through Welburn, Wellingor, Navenby, and Boothby, Grafo, and Lincolnshire. This tornado has been rated at a T8, T9, potentially making it the only F5 to ever do hit land in British history. Thomas Short wrote in 1749, described it as coming with such violence and force, force that Wellborn was leveled, all the houses to the ground, broken down, torn by trees, scattered by roots, and all the corn and hay gone. One boy only was killed, but in Wellingnor there were more people and two children were killed. From there, it passed on and touched the skirts of Navinby, ruined a few houses, kept its course to the next town, Boothby, where it dashed the church's steeple to pieces, furiously destroying the church itself. Both stone, timber, everything to it was gone. Now, you have a failing war, you have a plague, you have astrologists predicting doom, then you have the worst fire in history. It's all happening in 1666. The preachers say England's need to repent. The governors call for an official repentance. And then you have the worst tornado in England's history land. Can you blame the people if maybe they feel like God is judging them? Now, why would God be mad at them? Well, let's see, their king who persecutes good Christian ministers while he himself has several Catholics in his family and started war with the other big Protestant country in Europe. Could he maybe be one of the reasons this is happening? Another question Londoners want to know, who caused this fire? What if these two things were interlinked? What if the judgment was because of the cause? 
During the fire and after Londoners had seized and attacked and lynched foreigners, especially the French and the Dutch, they heard several rumors that these men were setting firebombs off and were remember people could hear buildings blowing up after all. Here's an account from the Smithsonian on one of the attacks. Before the flames were out, a Dutch baker was dragged from his bakery while an angry mob tore it apart. A Swedish diplomat was hung, nearly hung, saved only because that James man, that remember the brother of James had interceded and saved him. A blacksmith felled a Frenchman in the street with a vicious blow with an iron bar. A witness recalled seeing his innocent blood flowing, seeing innocent blood flowing in the stream like down to his ankles. A French woman was attacked and killed. And Londoners thought that the woman was carrying fireworks, fireworks was going to blow something up inside of her apron. She wasn't. Another Frenchman was nearly killed by a mob who thought he had a chest of bombs with him. But when they opened up the chest of bombs, there there were round things inside. They were they were tennis balls. Now, before we get out the pitchforks and call the English, um, you know, wildly backwards, these stupid, bigoted idiots, remember England's at war. England had just landed a pretty fatal blow on the Dutch Navy. A retaliatory attack on London was not the most unlikely and wasn't even paranoid to think that they would do it. You might also remember there's a real anti-Catholic sentiment that we haven't really brought up but is really important to this story. One of the reasons London was so big was because many of the people who had fled there were Huguenots, Protestants who had run away from Catholic-controlled countries who were hiding in Protestant lands. If you had fled one of those places 15 years ago and suddenly London is on fire while London and England are at war with Catholic France, you might think this was part of a Catholic plot to attack you. I remember one of the worst things you could you know, ever do, they say, is yell fire in a crowded building. Remember, we've told the story of Charles Spurgeon. It happened to him in his 20s. Several people died in a stampede when someone in the middle of a sermon yelled fire. There had been no fire. People died and were crippled forever, and it traumatized Spurgeon. The panic had led to death, and he felt responsible. When people are in a mob, they don't always think clearly. We've all seen in this kind of behavior, fear-induced paranoia and panic in our own lives. And now imagine your city has been burning for four days straight. And no matter what your firefighters do, it just another fire starts somewhere else and you hear things exploding. You have no news. You've lost your home. You're going to feel like someone's yelling fire and a panic. And if someone yells, we're under attack, the Dutch and the French are attacking while at war, you're going to probably think it's what's happening. As people are searching everywhere and questioning every foreigner they can, there's news that breaks. There's been a confession, and they've caught one of the arsonists who started the fire. A French watchmaker's son, he was 26 years old, was stopped on his way. He was going to a seaport, and when people brought him back in for questioning, he said, I started the fire, and I was in a gang of people sent to, fire, sent to start the fire in London, and we're all French. Robert Hubert, Lucky Hubert was his nickname, which is, of course, kind of an ironic nickname given the situation, confesses that he helped start the fire. Now, he was not a very clear gentleman. His original confession, he told the interrogators, and it wasn't exactly the same story he would tell the higher-ups, and it didn't, it wasn't really clear what was going on. And in the original story, he said, I'm a Huguenot, and I set fire at Westminster, and was a part of a gang of 24. But as he kind of told the story, it got more realistic. It was actually a small group of four, and uh, he was actually a Catholic, not a Huguenot. And that he started the fire at Pudding Lane. He kind of kept changing his story. But one thing that was weird about him is that he was making himself guiltier every time he changed the story. The fire started at a bakery on Pudding Lane, and this guy is saying he was a part of a small group that did it. Sounds suspicious, right? A chief tried... To actually, a chief judge actually tried to throw his case out because his own testimony was kind of disjointed. 
His friends and acquaintance came up and said, he's, well, he's not a Catholic. He's a Huguenot. He's a Protestant. Everyone agreed that he didn't seem like a mentally stable man. Public opinion was kind of against him actually being the man. In fact, there was a rumor that he wasn't even in England when the fire started. Was he being tortured to confess the crimes? Everyone wasn't sure what was going on. But every time he, he, he was brought before the court, he would go even further. He finally confessed. He sat threw a grenade straight into that bakery and started the fire. But the bakery didn't have any windows. And he actually had, he was physically handicapped. His arms couldn't lift above his shoulders. How, how would he have thrown a grenade into a windowless bakery? The authorities were in a really strange place. They, the prosecution, were trying to demonstrate that the defendant, who was confessing guilt, was not guilty. And nothing they could do or show would dissuade the defendant that he was, in fact, not guilty. I am French. I am Catholic, he would say. I am convinced I know I did this. And the jury didn't know what to do. What do you do when the man refuses to say, I'm not guilty? And so the jury said, fine, he's guilty. We see it. He, he did it. He started the fire. Now, the jury wasn't exactly neutral. Three of the people who were on the jury were members of the family who owned the bakery that the fire started from. And so you could see why that family might be happy to end someone else's life. That wasn't one of the, get the guilt off the bakers, right? There might be a good reason for them to be voting for him to be guilty. Gets the suspicion off them. There may be other political reasons, too, the bakery wanted it done. The baker was actually used by the king, and there had been a rumor that the king's baker had purposely set a fire. Now, you know, we don't want that going around. If this fire did start there, and it seems to have started there, it was, what's going on? Now, the king's baker wasn't actually really the king's baker. It was actually just a guy who made food, and some of the king's soldiers were using it. Still, though... They put three of the members of that bakery on the jury anyway. So it didn't seem like this guy was going to get a not guilty and no matter what happened. Now, there's another sad and disturbing aspect of this case. Many believe that the man himself wanted to die. No one brought him to the accusation stand. He brought himself there. He testified. And every time his story didn't fit the circumstances, he changed the story to fit the circumstance. He would make himself guiltier and guiltier and brought the center of the spotlight to himself. All he had to do throughout this whole trial was say, I recant, I'm not guilty. Literally, he could have just said it once and it would have stopped the hanging. The crowd believed he wanted to die. One Earl wrote in his diary that this man was depressed and he seemed to be using the court as a means of suicide. For the powerful, his death was a scapegoat. They could take the heat off and it did. When they went and did an autopsy on his body, London tore it apart on its way to the hospital. They were so angry at him. There was another person who then another like a couple a week later confessed to the fire. A 10-year-old child said him and his uncle threw fireballs into a bakery. These two did not end up going through the same process. The courts had kind of realized people were confessing when they didn't. But if you're a Londoner, you don't know the news, you don't understand what's going on, and, and now you have people confessing. And don't forget, this French guy said there were others that were helping him. This is making it more confusing to understand what happened and what is going on. As time went on, people realized this wasn't an invasion because the French and Dutch never invaded. Considering they hadn't done so, this doesn't seem to be an invasion from the French and Dutch, but that doesn't mean it couldn't secretly be a Catholic plot. Now, when I did research on this, many people use this story as a sign of what could happen under conspiracy theories and what, look at this as a, so very similar to the Salem Witch Trials. And it's true. It is similar to the Salem Witch Trials. One of the things that makes it very similar to the Salem Witch Trials is you have people confessing to it when they didn't really do it. And that was one of the most hard to understand aspects of the Salem Witch Trials. And people like to use the London Fire of 1666 
to justify stories of hysteria and maybe even how religion can bring hysteria on a people, especially hatred. But it is important to note that 60 years before, London had actually had someone, a Catholic, secretly try to at least burn down plot, part of London. During the gunpowder plot, the Catholics had attempted to blow up government buildings and overthrow the king. Every year, the people remembered the 5th of November and burnt an effigy to Guy Fox and those who had tried to overthrow England and reforce it to become Catholic. So, you know, you got to remember that this isn't just a made-up crazy conspiracy theory. This is something that had happened in living memory of some of the people there. And when you're at war with a Catholic nation, France, very powerful, and they are known for persecuting Protestants, many of those Protestants had run to London to hide and London setting fire, it's not that hard to make the leap that maybe London set fire because the Catholics had done it. To help deal with the rumors and problems, Parliament put together a committee. Let's investigate the cause. Was this caused by, you know, these Catholic, a Catholic plots? And that's when they brought that Christian astrologer from before to explain himself. He said the stars and he got off free. Uh, but the Catholics were, you know, being interviewed. Now, during this interview process, Something bad happened. The transcripts of this committee leaked to the public, and it went out as a pamphlet full of wild stories that got around everywhere of these different things Catholics would do to attack people. But the problem was all of it was hearsay. It was baseless rumor, and it actually only gave out the prosecution side, didn't bring the defense's side of the transcripts with it. So you got all, all these wild stories that went out in pamphlets of Catholics secretly attacking London. But the council itself didn't believe any of these things were true. They were just writing down the stories before they cross-examined them. This was sold as the official court details of the sordid, sordid Catholic attack on London. And that did not help people who didn't know what was going on. The idea that this was a Catholic plot was becoming more and more entrenched in everyone's mind. The king himself was a bit in trouble here. He was known to have Catholics in his family, although he and his brother had earned um, some love and popularity during the fire, that didn't last long. Some thought Charles had set the fire on, for revenge for what London did to his dad. Others thought it was his way of weakening England so that France could take over and he could become the French puppet king. After all, everything Charles did seemed to make England weaker. After all, he wasn't helpful during the plagues. He set us up in a war that England didn't need to be in. Maybe you could see why people didn't like Charles and thought he was a plant or something. And to be honest, I'm living 400 years removed from this, and I can kind of see why that rumor was popular. Charles did seem like he was doing a very bad job while spending a lot of money on his court and having lots of mistresses. Charles was good at maybe politics and speeches, but he was bad at helping England. Maybe it was better to let the Catholics take the hit if you're Charles. Every Sunday, preachers were preaching and sharing sermons saying England was in sin. They say the fire started on Pudding Street at a corner known as Pie Corner, it's almost like this is an illustration for preachers to use on gluttony and sin. And who was known for being more gluttonous than the Merry Monarch? Perhaps as a way to dodge the bullet, he kind of leaned into the anti-Catholicism, at least for a little while, to dodge the blame. He helped them put up a plaque that commemorated victims, and on that plaque it said Catholics did this to them. The answer seemed satisfactory to London. This was Catholics' fault. Now, I think it's really important to remember that Catholics are not blameless either. It's so easy to look at the English reaction to Catholicism as wild and overreaction, but we level-headed moderns would never have a prejudice like this, right? Richard Baxter, a beloved theologian, who someone we've featured on Revived Thoughts and Revived Devos, blamed Catholics for trying to kill King Charles I even. He, he went so far as to say it was the Catholics who killed that first king. Now, wait a second, that was Cromwell and them, right? That wasn't the Catholics. 
He blamed pretty much everything evil that happened on Catholics. That was what Richard Baxter did. Why? True Protestants were peaceful and kind, but if somebody did something bad, that's because they were secretly a Catholic. That's what Richard Baxter would say. That's strong prejudice. But do remember, these people lived through the gunpowder plot of 1605, a secret coup by Catholics. That wasn't the only thing the Catholics had done. William Pern, a Presbyterian who helped restore King Charles II, he blamed the Catholics for things too. And he went and found a book from the Catholics in the 1590s published by a Dominican friar named Campanella. Campanella was a Spanish friar who said that it was the official policy of Spain in Catholic countries to cause dissidents, to cause division, and make Scotland, Holland, England, and other Protestant countries to be weaker. Once they were weaker, they would then slide Catholic leaders into those countries until the collapse that they were caused by weakening those countries would allow Catholics to take over. This friar said this is the unofficial policy of Catholic Spain to all the Protestant divisive countries of the world until these offices have been taken over. Now, if you know your history, you also know the Catholics had did something very similar in Protestant Germany. They slowly trained up princes and lords to be friendly to them, gave them free schooling, trained them, until slowly they brought many of the children of the Protestants and Lutherans into their schools and made them Catholics. And these rich lords and rich people would suddenly find all their children had become Catholic while they weren't looking. This was wildly successful and almost brought Germany, I mean, it came close back into the Catholics' hands. The Catholics had done this kind of stuff multiple times. And let's not forget, everyone in England knows what the Catholics are doing as a part of the Inquisition in the New World. As someone who is, I have visited an Inquisition museum in Mexico City, it's not pretty what the Catholics were doing to people. It's pretty horrifying. So if you believe the Catholics meant what they said by dividing and deceitfully tricking the Protestant countries into going to war with themselves, if you believe the Catholics were serious when they said that's our 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 policy towards Protestant nations. You see what they're doing in the new world. You saw what they almost did to Germany. You yourself have fled from some of those countries. You can see why they were very suspicious of Catholic people. And then you start to remember, okay, these are real human beings. And then you look at them and you say, okay, I can see why they're suspicious towards the king and his brother. King Charles II and James. These guys are tough. In the immediate aftermath of the fire, remember, they got popular. But how popular was he really? It's kind of hard to tell. He's called the Merry Monarch. Some historians say he's the most popular king that ever lived. Others say he was blamed for the fire of London, blamed for the war with the Dutch, and blamed for everything you can imagine. As anti-Catholic sentiment is getting worse and worse, Charles and James kept looking more and more suspicious. Remember, you expect, you believe that Catholics are secretly subverting everything. Charles II is married to a woman named Catherine, and she is a Catholic. And Charles is actually related to King Louis XIV, the very famous king of France, who is the currently the most pro-Catholic guy in pretty much the world outside the Pope. Now, don't get the wrong idea. Catherine was not super well-loved by the king. And remember, he has all these mistresses, so they're not exactly close. But he even made one of the... He even Charles is a jerk. He made one of his mistresses, the king, queen's personal attendant. So when she needed help, she had to go to her, her husband's mistress to get help for things. Not exactly a beloved marriage, right? But people were suspicious of this king who had so many Catholics in his family. And the second war with the Dutch, well, it ended terrible for the English. It ended in what is called the Raid of Medway. The English had put their fleet somewhere. It seemed perfectly safe to put them, the River Thames, right? That's the river that cuts through London. What a beautiful, safe river it would be. No one would ever attack England, right? Well, 
They thought the Dutch couldn't sail. They thought the Dutch were still recovering from their wound of the Holmes bonfire. But they didn't realize that it was too late. The Dutch had actually sailed, had their boats ready, sailed right up the Thames River, captured, destroyed, and burnt down the English Navy right in the middle of the Thames River. Some of their best boats were captured. This led to 200,000 pounds of damages to the Royal Navy and extreme frustration from people. Charles had thought peace negotiations were occurring between him and the Dutch at the time, and he saw it as a personal slap in the face when they embarrassed him by taking his Navy right out from under him in his own river. He held on to a massive grudge about it, and of course this entire disaster would make him look terrible. Remember, this war was supposed to make him popular, and instead the Dutch won the war and embarrassed him in what is considered the worst naval defeat in all of England's history. This put Charles way on the outs of any popularity he thought he was going to have. A war that should never have happened caused massive financial and human losses and lives, embarrassed England like no other right after the plague and right after the fire. You can imagine how unpopular Charles was because of this. About a year after the war ended, England joined the Dutch and Sweden. They went and allied with the Dutch less than a year later to fight against France. King Louis wanted land that the Dutch had that he believed belonged to him. This may not sound like a big deal to you, but this is actually the first time in 50 years France and the Dutch weren't allies. Charles seized the opportunity to get back at France and to turn on the Dutch. In 1670, Charles and King Louis then secretly switched sides, and they went after the Dutch together. The French wanted some land called the Spanish Netherlands that they thought belonged to them. Charles wanted to repair his reputation and slap the Dutch on the face after they embarrassed him. And he would also get paid by Lewis to have his own money, money outside of Parliament's control, which he really enjoyed having. However, he had to promise some things to Lewis. And one of the things he promised in a secret treaty was that he would convert to Catholicism at some point in his life. This was called the Secret Treaty of Dover. The king was not allowed to make treaties without Parliament's permission. This all led to the Third Anglo-Dutch War five years later. Charles was determined to get back at the Dutch for what happened, and France declared war on the Dutch in 1672, and the English joined to help France. This same year, by the way, King had declared the Royal Declaration of Indulgences, now allowing non-Anglican Catholics and nonconformists to perform religious services. This sounds nice, right? The, the Puritans can preach again. Uh, uh, oh, but also the Catholics can preach again as well. We should just have religious tolerance for everybody, the king is saying. However, a parliament quickly said no, and the king. this only fueled more rumors that the king was going Catholic. Now, this was supposed to be a fast surprise attack between France and England destroying the Dutch and getting back at them. This was a five-year war. It was not a surprise attack that went real quickly. The English people, and especially Parliament, were mad at Charles because he got them into a war again with the Dutch. And this time, he was working with Catholic France to attack a Protestant neighbor. The rumors of a treaty and the rumors that he had agreed to secretly become Catholic were everywhere. After about two years, the English had to bow out of the war because they were doing so badly. And it's crazy to think the English are bad at war, but they were bad at war back in the day. Charles feared that staying in the war would cost him his head if he became more popular. Then he decided to play both sides against each other. He'd pretend, I'm going to join back up with you, France. We'll be friends for a while. And then he, he would pretend with the Dutch, and he would go kind of back and forth for a while, pretending he might help one side or the other, just kind of playing politics. In one of his moves, though, he did something that would actually change everything. He sent his niece to marry William the Orange, a Protestant prince. And this was done to earn Dutch, just kind of one of his treaty moves. He didn't realize that he was actually changing history. He thought the Protestants would like this and this would make him more popular. But again, people just saw it as Charles politicking and toying with future and they didn't like it. 
The huge anti-Catholic sentiment and the king's flirting with Catholicism back and forth so much was not seen as good. And then something that no one could have seen coming happened. Just one of those history events that just are just one of the most, those just, just interesting things that happened. An English priest in August of 1678 came to Charles's palace with a large manuscript that he and another priest had written. They declared that the Pope and the Catholic Church had every intention of assassinating the king and several key members of parliament to turn England Catholic. They said the Jesuits were soldiers, had sent soldiers to prepare and take it over, and they named 100 people in their manuscript that were in on this conspiracy. They gave this information to a man at the palace, Christopher Kirby. Who's Christopher Kirby? Oh, he's just one of the alchemists that work at the palace. Oh yeah, Charles loved science, loved experiments, and was a big believer in alchemy. While he was in exile during the days of Oliver Cromwell, he got all into alchemy by a man who said he was looking for the philosopher's stone. He spent hours every day melting mercury in his lab and trying to bend metals into elements. Hours the king spent doing this every day. He was convinced that he could transmute one thing into another substance. He had chemists, and on the upside, he pushed England to grow in sciences and helped create the Royal Academy of Sciences, did all these things for money that were good for science, but also his health took a major nosedive from mercury poisoning because he was working with it constantly, trying to bend it into gold. Now, Charles was an intelligent man. He was actually trained by Thomas Hobbes, a wonderful mathematician and the author of Leviathan. He could keep and understand technical discussions. When he was talking with his own naval officers, he could explain how to build better ships for wars. He had telescopes. He actually saw Saturn's rings and would invite people to come over and look at telescopes and see Saturn's rings far away. But this chemist brought the news to Charles of a plot. Charles prided himself on being an approachable man of the people, and so he invited these two commoners to come talk to him. He didn't believe in the conspiracy, but he had one of his people look into it. The English bishop's accomplice seemed to be a mad, sorry, the, now one of the guys seemed crazy, but the bishop, Titus Oates, he seemed like a good man. And he was telling him that there's this conspiracy after him. He was wise and clever. He had a great memory and he impressed him. And so they went and kind of did some investigation. Edmund Godfrey gave a deposition and looked into the assassination plot. They did find some letters in one of the men's houses and it was left in a not overly hidden place, but they did find letters and the conspiracy in these, you know, said this guy, one of the men they were going to investigate was going to kill the man. They found some letters that were kind of left out in the open. And it said that, you know, that's exactly what these letters said he was going to do. He was working with the French, the French to kind of maybe overthrow the king. Now, these were old letters, but Titus had predicted where they would be and how they could be found. And they brought the man before trial and there they declared him all guilty. And now this is starting to me to sound a lot like the Salem witch trials, isn't it? We have this very, uh, hmm, we're finding guilty things right where we expect them to be. And we have one person pointing out to them. But instead of witches in Salem, we have Catholics in London who are secretly in a plot to kill the king. This conspiracy gets even worse when a very early believer in the plot dies. He's mysteriously killed. And the plot said he would die. And he was a loyalist to the king. He was one of the men who believed that this conspiracy theory, this assassination would happen. And according to the bishop, the man named Titus, he said he, he knew he was going to die and this man could tell. And he actually got paranoid. Everyone around him said he thinks he's going to die. He thinks he's going to die. He started making final statements about he's going to be a martyr. The Catholics will kill him, but don't let them take England. And then one day he went for a walk and they found him dead in a ditch, strangled and then stabbed with a sword. This was the evidence people were looking for. The Catholics were here and they were beginning the coup, the coup of the taking over the country. Now, this death today is still a mystery. It was very unlikely a suicide because he would have had to beat himself up and then kill himself. 
The Catholics had no reason to kill him. In fact, people were already being executed because of old letters. So you weren't going to do something to actually draw their ire on you. Why would you do this? And the anti-Catholic party didn't want to kill this guy because he was one of their firm speakers telling everyone the Catholics were coming. So why would you kill your number one speaker? So who would have done it? It's actually very likely that this guy was kind of in the criminal underworld and he had recently imprisoned a man for manslaughter, but it actually been that he had kind of run afoul of him in the underworld, kind of doing, you know, not so good shady things. And that this guy had probably snuck out of prison and killed him because he went missing shortly thereafter. And it's very likely it's had nothing to do with the Catholic plot, but it didn't matter because the man who said, I'm going to die, the Catholics are going to kill me. I'm number one on their list, then was murdered. And that told everyone the Catholics were in on it now. Everyone everywhere was afraid. The Catholics were afraid for their lives. Madness seemed to be taking over London. On the other side of it, the people of London asked all the Catholics, just get them out of the city. We don't want them. We, we're worried they're going to kill us again. What if they set us on fire again? Everyone remembered the city on fire. And everyone agreed it was the Catholics' fault that did it. The king granted it. He thought it was for the safety of the Catholics. Get them out of there before they get attacked. Why were they so afraid? The fire. Miles Prance, a nearby craftsman, he went to one of the trials where the Catholics were being interrogated for this assassination plot that got out of control. And he started defending them. He started speaking from the stands. Hey, they, they're not doing this. These are good people. Why are you doing this? Well, he got put on trial for doing that. And before he knew it, one of the Protestants there started saying, hey, hey, it's you. You're, you're in on the Catholic trial. Now, that Protestant there yelling that to him happened to be one of his renters who owed him money. But before you know it, he suddenly was being accused of the murder of that guy from before. This guy was taken to jail. He was taken to London's tower, tortured, threatened with the rack. It was illegal to put people in the rack, but they put him on it anyway. His cell was tiny, one of the most uncomfortable cells they had in all of London's tower. He was given no fire for warmth, and he wasn't given food in the middle of winter. Not long after, Miles, this man who had stood up for the Catholics, who was a Catholic himself, who was betrayed by one of his own renters, suddenly told a new story after the tortures. He suddenly said, I heard Irish Catholic priests were planning to kill, and they killed that one man, and they're going to kill more. Soon he began to, to, to point out people just like that bishop before, and soon the two of them were pointing out everybody. Does this not sound like the Salem witch trials, people pointing it out? It's a bit crazy how much this just seems like the same story played out again. What are you to do, though, when the accused are suddenly saying, you're right, I am on a Catholic plot, and I know who the others are? Just like in the case of the London fire, the guy asked to die for it because he said it was him. This was the main crux of the Salem witch trial story. What do you do when the people accused say, I'm guilty, you're right, you caught me? That's what these people are doing in this story, too. The men that Prance accused were tried and executed by February of 1679, and things began to get out of control. Charles never believed in any of this, by the way. Charles II did not believe that there was a plot to kill him by the Catholics, but he asked Parliament to open an investigation anyway. Charles tried to stop this from getting out of control, but he was being called, you're too pro-Catholic to see the danger of the Catholics, Charles. What is he supposed to do? Interfere with judges conducting trials? How would that make him look? The bishop from before, the man who brought this to the alchemist in the first place, he testified that he, the Catholics started the fire and they're going to do more. He said that they've been bringing gunpowder into London, getting ready to do it. They even brought a Catholic they found who was storing gunpowder. He, well, actually, he was the king's firework maker. Still, though, we're not sure. He had gunpowder on him, after all. Bishop kept getting more and more radical. Now he was naming important Catholic lords in the conspiracy. Now, the king said, no, this is not happening. The Catholic lords are not trying to kill me. 
They said, for starters, two of these Catholic lords don't even talk to each other and haven't talked to each other for 25 years. They hate each other. And the other one is so sick with gout, he can barely move. Didn't matter. Bring him to court. The five Catholic lords are plotting a coup. We're going to bring them to court. And Parliament did and brought him for trial anywhere. Anyway, things kept getting wilder. Soon the bishop said the queen was working with a doctor to poison the king. The bishop was actually thrown in jail for this, but Parliament said, let him out. He knows what's going on. This led to a gigantic hysteria that swept over London. Noblemen would walk around in public. Noble women would walk around in public with guns because they feared Jesuits were waiting around the corner to take over the kingdom. Now imagine that. You're walking down the street and these noble women are just walking around with their, you know, their guns, their pistols, their rifles out, ready to fight the Catholic Jesuits that aren't even there. Catholic widows married Anglicans as fast as they could so that they wouldn't be seen as Catholics. Homes were searched for invasion weapons. Parliament itself was searching expectation. What if there's another gunpowder statue like the gun the gunpowder plot of 1605? A young Catholic banker made a joke and made a drunken joke while he was being forced to leave the city. Oh, the king, if I if only I was gonna plot against him, I'll I'll show him what I think of him. Ten days later, he had been tried and executed for the joke. Men came forward, some of them of high standing, and they would accuse enemies that they didn't like. Oh, he's a Catholic. He's working with the Catholics, that one is. One was of such noble character and high standing that this man was believed. And even the king said, I started to think it was real when he came out against them. But it was found out that many of these people were doing it for greed or personal revenge. When there's a hysteria and mob, this is a good way to get rid of an old family enemy or an old business competition. You know, if you're Walmart, maybe Target's working for the Catholics, right? Oh, we got rid of them, didn't we? Many criminals of the underworld were using the hysteria too. You had these famous noblemen, you had bishops, and then you had these criminals coming out and they go, yeah, that one's Catholic. Yeah, that's one's Catholic. And you're getting rid of your enemies by doing so. People didn't know what to think anymore, but they knew one thing. Catholics were dangerous and were trying to take over London. Now, you might have been up on trial, by the way. If you were one of the voices saying, hey, we're going too far, we look crazy. Well, that sounds kind of pro-Catholic of you. And that might get you on trial. If there was no Catholic coup, why would so many people say it? We have noblemen, we have bishops, we have the kingdoms, we have parliament. You think there's no Catholic plot when there's this many people telling you there's a Catholic plot? What are you thinking? From businessmen to noble families to criminals to famous people, everyone knew one thing, and that was there was a Catholic plot. Why would these businesswomen be walking around with guns if there was no Catholic plot? But in other cities, the anti-Catholic hysteria wasn't quite so firm. When the people of London would go to other cities and try the same stuff, they would not accuse their non their Catholic neighbors of being in a plot. And when these Catholic neighbors didn't go to jail and didn't get executed, well, nothing happened. And people began to realize the Catholics in other places don't seem so bad. Maybe they're not. A, maybe we're, what we're doing in London isn't making any sense. All the men, every time they went and got executed, they always said they were innocent. 22 people got executed by just one judge alone, but even he wasn't sure if the Catholics were as guilty as he thought, and he wouldn't take cases anymore. The king finally intervened in 1681 and demanded, stop having trials, stop killing Catholics, we're done. Over time, it was revealed that this was all made up. The bishop had no secret knowledge of a Catholic plot. The whole cabal, all of it, was nonsense. It was not true. He would eventually end up in prison, and some of the people he accused with him, one of those noblemen that we mentioned earlier would be thrown in jail. And one of those criminal underworld guys was actually killed by a mob and beaten to death when they put him on trial. The bishop, who was once wildly famous, everyone in London wanted to talk to him. He was the talk of the town, became a prisoner. Eventually, he did get released. I don't know why. And he would die in obscurity. 
This calamity did bring one thing to the floor, though. You may think all of that hysteria, what, what good could it have done? Well, it did actually do one thing, though. James, the brother of Charles, was found out to be a Catholic during that time. The anti-Catholic hysteria had made Parliament push a bill through that said they could not have Catholics on the throne of England. King Charles had fought it, but he did take an oath that he wasn't Catholic. But James didn't take the oath. And they found through it that James had actually been Catholics. People had suspected it before, but they had their proof. Charles could see that Parliament was going to pass this bill again. So he dissolved Parliament. This left the people wanting to push the bill, but they had no legal way to stop the king's brother from taking the throne after King Charles died. Some of the leaders were determined to keep a Catholic king from taking over. They did everything they could, but legally they had no plan. In 1683, they came up with the idea of the Rye House Plot, an attempt to assassinate Charles and James at a racehorse match. However, Charles and James never went to the racehorse. A, ironically, fire swept the town and kept them from going. <clears throat> this then had the plot revealed to them. John Locke, one of the people that you may have heard of in history, famous for his books and ideas on freedom and government, was actually a person who allowed them to use their home. He was one of the conspirators, and he was sent off in exile because of his actions here. Many of these leaders were the people who helped lead the anti-Catholic trials. Some of them would be executed. Some of them would be exiled. Some of them would be imprisoned. Many historians think the plot itself actually was a fabrication, that Charles had seen the made-up uh, popish plots to assassinate himself and decided to make up his own plot called the Rye House Plots to get rid of his anti-Catholic enemies. On the other side, maybe it was a real thing, but whatever happened, it, was a real, it had a lasting impact as all these anti-Catholic leaders who had had this plan, who were waiting for Parliament to come back, were suddenly exiled, execu executed, or thrown in prison. Now Charles had no one to stop him and his brother from reigning a nice long time. Remember, Charles's dad had been rebelled against and executed. Assassination plots were to Charles a pretty big deal, even if they were real or not. And if you think that this is what they were willing to do to Catholics when they thought they were going to assassinate you, what were they going to do to your brother? Then, out of nowhere, in 1685, Charles died at the age of 54. It was unexpected. And it might have been brought about partially by all that mercury he'd been playing with. However, many suspected it was poison, including one of the royal doctors who said on his official note, poison. Now, it probably wasn't poison, but just like that, James is on the throne. Remember, he had no legitimate heir. He only had a bunch of mistresses, Charles did. James, well, he had a little bit of popularity during that fire, but then he came out as Catholic during the popish plots. Now, he only had one heir. It was a girl. And that girl, well, oh, she had been married off to the Protestants, William of Orange, when Charles was doing all his politicking during that Second Anglo War and Third Anglo War stuff. She had been married off, and well, she was a long ways away. Parliament tried to maybe begin things friendly. You know, we went, we got the wrong way with Charles. James, can we do a little bit better with you? You seem like a nice guy. You, you know, you're not going to get us into any random wars like your brother, right? Maybe we can do things. Well, no. James was bad at politics, and he ruled like a tyrant, and he made it pretty clear he had plans for England that involved England becoming Catholic. James opposed the son of one of Charles's mistresses, and after using his army, he defeated Charles's mistress's son, and he uh, became the rightful heir of the throne. Charles had made the throne unpopular. James made it far more unpopular. James immediately began to build a standing army, even though it was against the rules. He also began controlling commanders and generals, and he only promoted Catholics to those positions, and he fired the Protestants whenever he could. 
When Parliament said, hey, you can't do that, he dissolved it and wouldn't let them take back control again. He also told Scotland to start taking Presbyterians out that wouldn't go under the state. But he did tell Scotland, hey, start hiring Catholics to run things. He filled all his top positions with Catholics. Anyone who disagreed with them, he would get them fired. Even though less than 2% of England at the time was Catholic, every single job, from post office worker to judge, general, noble person, anyone he could promote was always a Catholic. Now, at the same time, James allowed the Puritans and the nonconformists to preach. He said, hey, we're going to have religious toleration. Let the Puritans come back. He claimed in public religious tolerance for all. But in Scotland, he began prosecuting unloyal Presbyterians and demanding that Catholics take their positions over their churches. His language in public was, I like everybody, but his actions were Catholics first. Remember when we talked about the Catholic Spanish policy? Remember that policy everyone was scared that they were going to do? That they were going to divide the people against each other? and that they were going to bring Catholics in charge of everything. Well, that's exactly what James was doing. He was dividing everyone by saying, let's have nonconformists, let's have Anglicans. Why don't you guys, why don't you Puritans and Anglicans fight? And in the meantime, while you Puritans and Anglicans fight, I'm going to fill every position of power with a Catholic. He was doing exactly what the Spanish strategy was. Even if he didn't know it, even if it was unintentional, it was clear that James was working towards building a very Catholic England, and there would soon be no room for anyone else at it. Parliament had no voice and would not be brought back. Charles had dissolved them in 1682, and for three years they were again dissolved. And after three years, they were dissolved almost instantly under James. No one could do anything to check the power of the Catholic king as he swerved England straight into Catholicism. Not just England, he was bringing Scotland and Ireland along with him. Then it got even worse. The queen did something that no one expected. Old James gave birth to a son, which means not only would James be Catholic, but his son would be too, and that looked like the end of Protestant England to everybody. Seven bishops got together in secret, and they sent a message to Prince William of Orange to come with Mary, the daughter of James, and become the new queen and king of England. Mary was the eldest daughter of James and was supposed to take the throne until that son was born. These bishops said, called themselves the Immortal Seven, and they said, bring an army when you come, and we will make sure that England goes to you. Prince William and Mary, the one who was married off by Charles, agreed. And James thought his own army would be strong enough to deal with Prince William's and told King Louis, hey, don't, don't worry about it. King Louis said, you need an army? I hear an army's coming for you. And, yeah, I got this. We got, we got our own armies here. Well, when William's army arrived, many of the Protestants and even James's other daughter joined with William. And although James had a larger army, instead of fighting a war with his own daughter, he fled. He basically gave up the throne. He decided to throw his own royal pendant into the River Thames and ran away. Parliament, of course, immediately threw the throne to King Charles, or to King William here and Prince and Queen Mary. Interestingly, they didn't actually want it. In fact, the prince was like, I don't know. Do you, do you think this would be good for our marriage if we were... Uh, running England, and uh, the queen said, hey, I, I got your back. Whatever we go through, I will stick with you. Through these events, the next year when Parliament came back, they immediately passed a Bill of Rights to ensure that the citizens did not go through something like this again. These were famously shaped a lot by the ideas of John Locke. Remember that guy who might have been helping them with the assassination plot a few years before. Charles, while he was alive, ordered the rebuilding of London. Now, Charles had lived abroad while in exile and wanted the new London to be a big, beautiful city with wider streets and not ramshackle huts. And so when London was rebuilt, much of what London is today was organized and designed and carefully built to look beautiful. Now, there's something interesting that happened because of the fire of London 1665, 66. 
Now, the London Museum will tell you this next part is not true. They're the only ones who say it isn't, though. London was built in a way that everything was piled up on top of each other. The, the, the fire itself did not kill that many people. But when they rebuilt the fire, they rebuilt the city, they built it with big lanes, big open city, made it beautiful, made it a beautiful metropolitan area that people could look up to. And as they did that, they pushed the population not to be on top of each other anymore. This made it so that great big plagues like the one of 1665 didn't end up happening again. And so even though the fire was terrifying, scary, and led to all these things, the plagues that had actually killed people more stopped happening with as much frequency and were not as dangerous because the people weren't living literally on top of each other to the same degree. So was the hand of God on England? Was there a secret Catholic plot? Well, the irony was there actually seemed to be a real plot from James and Charles, especially James, to move the country Catholic. I don't know how much Charles really cared, but he did agree to become Catholic. He did kept, keep helping and playing with the Catholics. And James seemed pretty content to move the country into a Catholic direction. But it wasn't because of the fire of London. But through the fire of London came anti-Catholic sentiment that went to a sky-high rocket rate. But because it went sky-high, rocket went crazy, it ended up revealing that James was Catholic, which ended up revealing the Catholic plot in its own way. And because of all of that, England didn't become Catholic. So was the hand of God on England? I don't know. But the events that happened in London in 1665 and in 1666 forever changed London. And the way it changed London, because of things like John Locke and other things, it changed the entire world. Why did we want to zoom in on so much on just one little fire in a city you may never even have been to? Well, for starters, the more I studied this fire and this plague, the more it just seemed like it resounded in every aspect of human history. This war, this fire, it's, it just it touched so many things. You know, we talked about how New York was found in this time, but actually Rhode Island was founded because of some of the things going on too. There were colonies and changes in places like the Caribbean. And then there's this insane you know, conspiracy. And the insane conspiracy, even though it seemed like it was completely crazy, Catholics are taking over and going to kill the king. But in some ways, it was true. The Catholics were taking over through James. But I also want to zoom in on it too, not just because this is a crazy story, but we look so often at a couple hundred years of history, and we'll hit these bullet points as we go. But once in a while, if you can, zoom in on one of those bullet points and you'll see that that bullet point has actually a million little bullet points inside of it. And it's so easy to gloss over a, you know, a big story as just a little thing. Oh, the fire of London, 1666, people believe the hand of God was on them and this changed the Protestant direction of England, right? But when you look at this story, there's a lot going on here. The fire of London, 1666 would just be a normal bullet point for most of us, yet it had so many layers to it. That's pretty wild. By the way, the fire, it did what actually happened. Remember, Joe, I told you guys what would happen, and I didn't actually tell you. I, I kept you in the dark. Well, on the night I of September. What's that? I, I I don't don't worry. I hadn't forgotten. <laughs> on the night of September <laughs> On the night of September 1st, the king's own baker went to bed. This is a baker kind of baked some goods for the naval army. The king's baker he worked maybe it helped with the palace, whatever. He was a good baker, done a lot of work, been there for a long time. Palace paid him well, all that stuff. Well, as a baker, he had a fire going all the time to cook the bread that they had, and they would rake the coals and all that stuff. He raked the coals, made sure it was out. At midnight, his daughter grabbed a candle to use the bathroom, couldn't get enough light from it. Well, anyway, she checked the fire, so she says, and went to bed. And then at 2 a.m., 
that little fire in the coals suddenly burst out. Now the family to their dying day said, we checked, we did everything right. We didn't cause that fire, but you know, of course they would. They didn't want to be responsible for burning 80% of London to the ground. They immediately ran out the doors once the fire got going in their own home. But their maid got trapped upstairs. She was too scared to jump out of the second story of the building. And she actually became one of the few and the very first casualty of the fire and one of the few confirmed victims of the fire. That baker then ran off to get help. And the rest of it was history. Soon that fire was spreading. The mayor wouldn't let them pull down the building. Soon the fire was out of control. The king couldn't send the soldiers in. Da, 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 da. And I try to think about what if I was a Christian living in London during this time? What if I was somebody living at the time? I actually found a very, very specific group that I want to talk about. You see, there was a group of Baptists that started meeting in 1650 and 1651. Baptists, by the way, were pretty new at that point. And at that time, Cromwell was in charge of London and they were Puritan. And they said, you can't be Baptists. We don't want Baptists. We want Puritans. And so this group of Baptists met in secret. Over the time, the little group of faithful followers of God withstood the persecution on the Puritans, and then they withstood the hard times when the king came back. Yet sadness struck this little group of Baptists when in 1665, during the Great Black Plague, their pastor who had been on the front lines helping people died. To replace him, they named a man named Benjamin Keach. Benjamin Keach was a wonderful pastor, and in 1689, he helped write the London Confession of 1689. It's a pretty big deal. If you're a Reformed Baptist, you know exactly who Benjamin Keach is right now. And you're going, oh, that guy. And if you're not, you might not be as familiar with him, but that's okay. He brought in hymn singing to the church and got them away from singing just the songs. A little bit of a controversial guy, that Baptist church. I know controversies in Baptist churches about what to sing. That's never happened before. Now, finally, in the 1680s, this little church that had been around for 30 plus years, because of those changes by King Charles and King James, they could meet out in public again in the open. And they had a little congregation. They built a little building that was probably very nice for them. They bought one. Eventually, a very famous pastor rolled into town named John Gill. He helped shape and create Baptist theology and was one of the most influential Baptist theologians that ever lived. Then over time, this little church shrank, became smaller, and a young preacher took over. He changed the name of this little Baptist church to Metropolitan Tabernacle, and that man's name was Charles Spurgeon. He led the church into becoming the most popular church in all of the empire. That church still stands and has a pastor currently serving at it today. What an amazing thing. But that church started, that little Baptist church started in the 1650s. What if that little group of Baptist Christians had given up when their pastor died in the plague? What if they'd given up during the fire? What if they'd given up during the persecution? What if Keach had relocated them far away from London? They said, give up on this horrible city with its horrible politics. History was changed because a small group of Christians were faithful, and over time, their faithful steadfastness led to great change. The names Keach, Gill, and even Spurgeon might not be remembered today if they had not started that church when they did and held through all those different ups and downs that London was going through. They might not have been those things, and they might not be the people we know them today. The world may spin around us. You may have no idea what's going on, and you may think you live through crazy times. Yet we as Christians hold out, be faithful, be steadfast, be patient. Who knows who will come out from your work that will change the world too. Awesome. Thank you, Troy. That, that was quite the journey from start to finish, yeah. Uh, but it's kind of interesting. It makes you wonder how many other, I don't know, big events are causing, yeah, causing cascading effects that alter history that that you wouldn't necessarily make those connections because I think you did a pretty good job laying out that. Like, yeah, the London Fire wasn't directly 
related to this plot that the royalty family was going through, but it was probably one of the most instrumental things that ended up revealing it uh, just by sheer coincidence or maybe something more. Uh, fascinating stuff. Thank you. That was you good. The, the theme I was going for landed good. completely. You pretty much summed up all the main <laughs> things I was trying to hammer, which was, hey, this is little, but it had a big deal. And also, if this thing hadn't happened, who knows what the world would look like. Good, good yeah, stuff. yeah, absolutely. All right, so that's going to do it for this edition of Revive Thoughts Deep Dive. Again, if you're a Patreon member, you're going to hear this early uh, before it, it, it gets released to the masses and we thank you for being a patreon member for that if you're hearing this and you're not a patreon member you could have heard this earlier if you were a patreon member Uh, (laughs) but yeah thank you for everyone that supports us thank you for uh allowing us to keep doing what we do and uh allowing us to yeah do what we love this is troy and joel and this is revive thoughts deep dive When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.